Marvin Goldfried is a distinguished professor of psychology at Stony Brook University, where he helped develop the graduate program in clinical psychology. He's the co-founder of the Society for the Exploration of Psychotherapy Integration. Alan Francis is a professor of psychiatry and chair emeritus at Duke and was chair of the DSM-4 task force. Marvin describes the evolution of his psychotherapy orientation as psychodynamic, behavioral, CBT, and eventually integrative. He practices, teaches, and supervises what works clinically using direct and indirect evidence base. Alan describes his approach to psychotherapy as whatever works or no one size fits all. He was trained and taught at the Columbia University Psychoanalytic Center, but remains equally interested in brief, supportive, cognitive, behavioral, interpersonal, and family therapies. Please enjoy this week's episode. Good morning and welcome to Talking Therapy. I'm Marvin Goldfried here with my colleague, Alan Francis. Good morning, Alan. Hey, Marvin. Great to see you. Good to see you. So listen, um, let's talk today about why we seem to need different schools of therapy. And in thinking about how to, how to frame this issue, uh, my thought was, uh, let's, let's look at it as a clinical problem. Why, since the beginning of all therapies with Freud, have we had different schools? And why do they keep popping up? And um, let's look at that and see what the causes seem to be. What are the factors that seem to maintain this and prevent us from getting to some kind of, of agreement? Assuming that some kind of consensus, at least that, that the basics of change, <clears throat> would help improve our clinical effectiveness. And I, in some ways, I see this as a systemic problem. And what I mean by this is that there are social, political, economic factors that seem to keep us in the mode of coming up with new schools of therapy, um, having leaders of schools, and the leaders having followers. I would add just one one thought in yeah. terms of um, the history of mankind that. Uh, I would also factor in human nature. And I'm assuming you mean, you mean womankind as well. And, and tri tribalism and the fact that whenever you get people together, yeah. they tend to form schisms. So religions have always had schisms within the religion. Political parties have schisms within the political parties. Uh, businesses split off. That maybe what we're dealing with is a, a schismatic tribal tendency in human beings that transcends therapies. And you think therapists might be smarter about this, but we aren't. So do you think this is an innate, an innate tendency for people to compete? Or is it societally driven? I think, it's both, I think it's both. But if you look at the history of humanity, you always have people splitting off and going somewhere else and doing things their way. And it may be that um, we have to combine some deep fundamental aspect of human nature with the current social, social, economic, and political factors that encourage schisms in everything, and maybe especially in including psychotherapy. Yeah. Well, the, there are also factors that are uh, economic in nature. So people set up schools of therapy. They give workshops and then they develop an organization 
and a referral list. They promote it to the public, and the public says, oh, do you do, um, do you do cognitive behavior therapy? Or, or trauma-informed therapy. But the, the, the CBT thing, because this was back in the 80s when there was the uh, NIMH um, collaborative study on the treatment of depression, and cognitive behavior therapy, which was really cognitive therapy, but it was called cognitive behavior therapy, uh, got a lot of media coverage. And I would get a lot of phone calls. Do I do CBT? So I think, you know, that is, is a factor. Uh, so people do advertise on their web pages that they do all these things um, because of it, clearly uh, economic reasons, whether they do it well or not or something else. So are you saying that there's no hope? This is the nature of the beast? Well, I think we're both saying that in different ways. That, that Some of it is the nature of way humans function in, in small tribes and they're constantly splitting off and you're bringing up the, the current day powerful incentives to brand i guess it's a form of you could see this somewhat as a form of marketing that i have the brand of belonging to this tribe that makes me somehow superior to people who do not have this brand yes no i i totally agree um Many of us live in a competitive society. There are certain countries that are probably exceptions, like some of the Scandinavian countries. And the notion is, um, who's going to win? There are winners and losers, and everybody competes to win. Uh, so there's an ego thing uh, that clearly is involved, or the lack of ego, if, if you look at it as needing to fulfill a sense of, of, of worth and therefore starting a school. And to, and to some degree, this has been encouraged by the clinical trial mentality of, of horse races, that in order to prove efficacy, you would be comparing a therapy versus either a control group without therapy or another therapy. And it created the mentality that the therapies were distinct from one another and could be seen as competing with one another and if you're going to have a horse race, one horse is going to win and one horse is going to lose, rather than seeing the different techniques as being fully integratable and preferable in, in union rather than, than divided into atomistic um, name brand therapies. The research, which you, you treasure, Marvin, to some degree is a source of the problem. Yeah, but I think the problem certainly existed before there was research. And, you know, the offshoots of psychoanalytic therapy are an example of this. So I, I think there were, what's the term you psychodynamic people use? Overdetermined? Yeah, right. It means there are more than one cause. Uh, There's also another great term, uh, I think coined by Freud, called the narcissism of small differences. What is that? The narcissism of small differences. No, I heard what you said, but I don't know what you mean. Well, it, it, it was perfectly illustrated by early psychoanalysts that almost from the beginning of uh, Freud's development of an overall school of psychoanalysis, smaller schools began developing around one or another particular idea in psychoanalysis, which they would f further. And basically, one way of looking at this is that they were all under the same rubric, but they wanted to somehow or other chart out a territory that would be theirs 
And the narcissism of small differences would be the idea that people will fight hardest against their brother or sister school that's most like them, but is competing for the same group of uh, adherents. Didn't Freud personally demonstrate this on one of his absolutely. Wednesday night meetings? Yeah, absolutely. Freud was a genius in many ways, but not always in his interpersonal relationships. And he saw himself as this father figure trying to herd together an unruly group of, of competitive siblings. And yeah. he tended to want to have one orthodox view where everyone was following his point, point by point, his way of seeing things point by point. But the people were way too unruly. And it led to constant schisms within the psychoanalytic movement with offshoots in all different directions. His followers wanted to kill the father, namely him. Well, not just that. In fact, they more often wanted to have his favor against their sibs. Uh -huh. It was moreover a battle for his, his approval and a, uh, an attempt to discredit people who were very close to them in 99% of the way they saw the world but trying to brand that 1% difference has been very important. Let's look at, look at it from another point of view, this whole issue of um, similarities and differences. Let's get down to clinical cases. Um, and let's get down to um, the treatment of personality disorders. You know something about that, right? And you know about the different approaches to treatment of borderline. You know something about that. So let me tell you an experience I had. This past week, I was asked to review a book uh, to be published by the American Psychological Association on treatment of personality disorders. And the three authors were uh, Yuli Kramer, um, Ken Levy, and Shelley McMain, each representing a different point of view. Those are the, they, And they all co-authored the same book. So it's not several, several separate chapters. They pre present the information. They present the research on the treatment of personality disorders and sometimes specifically borderline. Uh, and then they um, look at a case and they do a case formulation. And they acknowledge that apart from language, their case formulations are not all that different. Okay, it's not surprising, right? That's the way it should be. But it's not, because we maintain different schools of thought. So there's, there's something here that doesn't compute, unless we say that there's something wrong with the system or the nature of a beast. Right, exactly. And why don't you trace a little bit, Marvin? I, I, I discussed a little bit how schisms occurred in psychoanalysis, maybe it would be useful for you to trace how schisms occurred within the world of cognitive and behavior therapies. Oh, definitely. I mean, as I just alluded to a little bit earlier, there is a clear distinction between cognitive therapy and cognitive behavior therapy. And the literature is very confused. Cognitive therapy, at least as developed by Beck, but he was clearly not the only one. There was Albert Ellis and there was lots of other people that spoke about the need to change perceptions or interpretations, primarily focuses on changing the way people view things. That's cognitive therapy. Cognitive behavior therapy 
does that, but it also changes, it also focuses on how what people do have an impact on others and on themselves. So it focuses on actions as well. And the two are confused, but they're sometimes seen as being part of the same thing. Now within, to get more to the point of your question, within CBT, there's an, a wide array of different approaches. So you, you've got um, acceptance and commitment therapy, which I think is um, a rewording of what we already have known in the past. It's more of a focus on behavior, uh, and um, but there is cognition in there as well. So you change the language. And there are lots of other approaches. There are 50, 50 named approaches. There are 50 yeah. different right. psychotherapies with alphabetical um, Yeah, or oh, more than that. Labels. CBT. So, so what happens, you see, here's part of the system. If you want to have a career and be recognized, it's important for you to say something that other people are not saying. It's called a new contribution. So people don't get grants for just repeating what is already known. So it's an attempt to repackage things. So there's financial, there's professional growth factors. But when you get down to the clinical nitty gritty, if you're a therapist who's interested in the welfare of a patient, and we've known this for years, Saul Garfield did surveys years ago in the 50s about this, you do what works rather than you do what your theory says. You know, I, one example I like is, is the uh, change from the original symptom focus, fairly brief therapies that occurred both in psychodynamic treatments in the early 1900s and in CBT in the 80s. So psychoanalysis started out as a symptom-oriented. Freud was a neurologist. He was de dealing with neurological symptoms to begin with. And only after there were, quote, resistances to the treatment of symptoms did he and others become interested in character. Yeah. And the, the most essential concept in psychodynamic therapy evolved that people repeat behaviors established early in life over and over and over again. And the, the essential part of therapy is to somehow or other break that chain of repetition compulsion and try new things, corrective emotional experience. So that was the basic change in psychoanalysis that occurred in the early 1900s. Yeah. In the 1980s, the cognitive therapist underwent the same evolution, and the idea of deep schemas became popular. The treatments lengthened, and the terminology was the jargon was jargon within the cognitive behavioral approach but really it was the deep schemas are essentially a psychodynamic concept under a different name so you yes. could say it's not really cognitive behavior therapy it's cognitive behavioral dynamic therapy right. you start working with deep schemas but instead of somehow integrating as you began trying to tell the field to do in the 70s instead of integrating and creating a psychotherapy that was broad enough in its goals and methods to encompass everything that came before, a new jargon was invented and branded in opposition to the older jargon. And you'd get studies of cognitive behavior therapy against psychodynamic therapy when really they weren't that different. Yeah. 
Well, let's assume that good therapists are in contact with reality. They're working with a patient and the patient brings up an issue the therapist has to deal with that issue, and there is a, there's a, probably a finite way, finite number of ways to deal with that issue. So therapist A with, a, with orientation A is confronted with this issue. Therapist B is confronted with a similar issue with another patient. They're going to deal with the issue. So the extent to which people are seeing the same phenomenon probably increases the likelihood that they're going to do similar things. To deal with that phenomenon. Well, I really love the way you put that. And, and it brings up a pet peeve of mine, namely that therapists should be dealing with reality, the reality of what the patient is feeling and thinking and doing at that moment. But training programs often detour them away from reality yeah. following a model. We have to see not the overall reality of what the patient's experiencing, we filter it through the model of the training program, which is often quite narrow and sees what, what it wants to see. Yeah. Let me bring up something that's very true. Let me bring up something which may be a little bit too tangential. Let me know. The difference between what science says and what policy says, and we certainly have seen this with COVID, um, and policy decisions take into account the phenomenon and lumping science here with also clinical observation. Um, yes, there's clinical observation slash science, but there's also the economics and there's also the politics. Should people wear masks or not? Should they get <coughs> booster shots or not? Are a function not of, only of the science, but of other factors. And I wonder if we have a similar kind of phenomenon here with the gap between what clinician sees in their practice uh, and the therapeutic package that gets trained. To focus that question some, you, you know a lot about the different training programs in, in, in clinical psychology. Yeah. Is it your sense that over the decades they are becoming more or less ecumenical? More, well, I should, wouldn't say decades. I would say within the past decade, it's becoming more ecumenical. So there's training for dealing with alliance ruptures. There's training for dealing with lack of motivation or waning of motivation, which cuts across, which are trans-theoretical and cut across um, different approaches. I think there is this. But I think the systems are set up. The systems are set up in, in, um, in clinical programs. The systems are set up in internship facilities. The systems are set up in, in um, other uh, in hospitals and other clinics to do intervention in a certain way. Well, I'm not understanding. Is it your sense that the... Yes trans-theoretical or ecumenical approach, is it your sense that the training programs are more and more embracing it or that they're remaining stuck in their own Procrustean bed? They're, they're facilitating trans-theoretical stuff, but, but, but the systems within clinics and, uh, and training facilities and hospitals 
and private practice are such that it doesn't seem to be picking up on the new ideas. So there's a lot of inertia to change? It's inertia to change, not only inertia, but other factors may be holding back. So more than just inertia, maybe opposition to change? Yes, I think it may be. We've, all re we've done it this way for all these years. What are you doing throwing away our tradition? Um, you know, it, I, th I think it's, a, it's a hard to put your finger on, but there is a field that is, uh, uh, is dealing with this now. It's called implementation science. I don't know. I don't know a lot about it. Do you? Some, but go ahead. Okay. Well, then tell me what you I know about in terms of guideline development, how hard it is to have guidelines actually change practice. Exactly. Exactly. It's changing this, the, the way practice is delivered. And, um, I mean, it's a real serious problem. What do you do with all the Rorschach cards that are in existence that everybody has? You just file them away and never use them again? If you've used them in the past, you know, you just may want to use them again. I mean, it's not terribly rational, but I don't think humans are always rational. So there are factors, and I don't know what gets studied in implementation science, but it's being able to implement what we know from both basic research, applied research, and clinical observation to change the way therapy is being done. What is it that makes you optimistic that in the last decade there's an increased desire for ecumenical? Well, I didn't uh, say the desire. I, I'm just saying <clears throat> there's an increase in the tendency to offer deliberate practice in, with videos and guidelines in certain trans-theoretical <coughs> phenomena. So it's not an optimism, it's an, obs it's an observation. But uh, so I see that on the one hand, but on the other hand, I see this entrenched approach to having schools of thought, and this is the way we do therapy here. How much of the entrenchment, and this is an impossible and just impressionistic question, but how much of it do you think is financial conflict of interest how much intellectual conflict, how much emotional conflict of interest, how much just people do what they've done? That's a good question. I'm, I'm sure you can put beta weights on each of these things. I mean, book publishing, it contributes to this because your publishing list, and you, know, you need this in order to stay in business as a, as a publishing house has to come up with books each year, new books each year, otherwise they're out of business. So there's a lot of stuff that gets repeated with different titles. And the more orientations you have in your publishing list, the more income you have. Really interesting. So, you know, there are all these, this, this, this is what I started saying at the beginning, but now I think we're illustrating it. These are all systemic factors that keep us doing what we've always done. But there are still some inklings of change. And, and it's really interesting. I hadn't occurred to me before. It's, a, it's sort of like the, the there's an inertia to change, but if you are going to change, it's going to be a bright, shiny new thing that will capture attention for readers so publishers are happy that will lead to workshops that will give the founder of the bright new shiny thing prestige and academic promotion that the 
ability to integrate, to ecumenically integrate therapies is unglamorous, doesn't lead yes. to grants, doesn't lead to promotions. Right. It's the work you've done for 40 years, essentially. The unglamorous work of trying to bring therapies closer to the reality of patients. And the, at war against this is the devotion to past loyalties, tribal loyalties to given therapies, plus the bright new shiny thing that will be a glamorous fad therapy that will excite readers, publishers, and workshop givers, but maybe split the field even further apart rather than bring it together. Yes, it's a bright new shiny thing. It comes out in a book and you can send that book to your mother and she will be so proud of you. Therapists are people too. Um, so I think there is a lot of this factor. And, um, so where, where does this leave students? What should they be doing? That's a very good question. Um, I would say it leaves students with the burden to be solved. That it's up to the students and the new faculty to take a stand and do what is right. I mean, we seem to be in this, whether you're a left or right-wing politician, do what you believe is right. And if you believe that therapy, different therapy schools are not the best way to help our patients or to train our therapists, if you believe that there's a common core that should be looked at, uh, and then which will then allow you more freedom to intervene because you can cross over and use techniques and methods that could be effective from other schools of thought um, because it's it's really just an implementation of the same foundation. If you can get, if they can get these new students and, and new faculty and, and clinicians, if they can take a stand on this and say, we want to do this because this is right. So it's important for students to be able to learn from their supervisors and not be too defiant but it's equally important not to be brainwashed by supervisors that there's only one right way of doing things. Right. And that people should seek out as part of their training in, in therapy, the widest possible readings, the widest possible supervision, and to keep an open mind and not become doctrinaire acolytes of any one or another school. I couldn't put it better. Let's just end. Okay. I, because hopefully your words will resonate in the brains of the future professionals. Great talk, Alan. Always a pleasure, Marvin. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Stay safe.